Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. So this will be the second in our series of leadership figures. Uh, you'll recall that last time I was drawing a large red question mark after the whole concept of leadership in Islam. Taking my cue from the uh, well-known, uh, or at least it should be well-known, prophetic hadith that one should not seek imara or positions of power, authority. And this uh, prophetic guidance, which is repeated in a number of circumstances, has, I think, historically shaped the mindset of uh, the more morally conscious members of the Ummah, uh, inscribing a second question mark after the idea of Islamic leadership programs, as these are frequently touted in perhaps slightly westernized or confused or syncretic modern Muslim environments. And we looked at this a little bit. Leadership programs and all kinds of buzzwords inscribed on flip charts as though being a religious leader were in some sense, however remote, analogous to being a captain of industry or a politician. And we saw that actually this is not the prophetic paradigm. As the hadith goes on to say, if you seek leadership and are given it, leadership will be given authority over you, will become your leader. But if you are given it without seeking it, God will help you. Uh, it's actually very clear in our tradition and throughout our moral reflection that to uh, be ambitious in that sense is extremely problematic and one doesn't have to turn many pages of the texts of uh, Muslim heroism. We saw Imam Shamil last time and his real reluctance, but the fact that he had to engage in the defense of his people. Remember the great Quranic verse, fighting is prescribed for you, wahua lakum. You don't like it. This is not our conventional image of what it is to be a military hero. Stand up to the crease, wave the flag, wave the sword. And no, it's not a, an ego trip. It is a disliked thing, a reluctant responsibility. All the pages of the texts of Islamic law where you see how zealous uh, the early Muslims were to avoid positions of fatwa, positions of judgeship. Terrifying. Uh, so we began by suggesting that the title of this series of lectures might actually be wrong or um, contradictory. But nonetheless, given that we have people who have been leaders, in other words, they have had people whom they led, objectively speaking, we can, uh, I think, uh, proceed, but with this caveat. The difference between profane and sacred leadership is the difference between uh, Pharaoh and Moses. The one is zealous for power and lives for power and thinks of nothing else and fears nothing other than losing it. Whereas the one who is spiritually powerful really is kind of reluctant. He doesn't want to go to Fir'aun 
He wants somebody to support him. He is uh, diffident throughout, and yet he is the one who history remembers as, as the leader. This turns the usual secular and certainly the 21st century logic on its head. We need to remember this throughout. So in this series, I will be looking at uh, different facets of this complex phenomenon. Noting, of course, that ours is not a religion of uh, anchorites, hermits, except under certain very specific circumstances and particularly at the end of time, where we are authorised and even prophetically enjoined to step back because the situation seems hopeless, the collapse of everything. Who are we as mere mortals to stand against the Torba Magna, the great turbulence at the end of time where everything is inverted and this is part of the manifestation of the divine Jalal in the end times. So yes, that's when you find your sheep and head for the hills. <laughs> this is prophetically mandated. And conversely, those who jump up and seek leadership under those conditions are likely to be uh, much closer to the pharaonic than to the mosaic type. But generally, we are not people who step back from responsibility. We're the people who go to God through the world rather than trying to skirt it or avoid it. And this is the case in family life. We are not celibates. Instead, we go to God through assuming the normal responsibilities of our created humanity. Other traditions, notably Christianity and Buddhism, say, no, you, if you wish to be part of the spiritual elite, you do step out of that as well. And you step out of uh, positions of, of authority and you don't engage in warfare. Those are two pacifist as well as celibate traditions. But our ethos is different. Our ethos is about embracing the world, understanding it as an abode of tribulation, but an abode in which righteousness is possible in the world, um, and perhaps despite the world, but through it. This is very characteristic of the Islamic ethos, and Judaism in many respects is quite akin to it, in forms of Hinduism with the Kshatriya, the warrior caste. Um, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita is a great example of a leader, I guess, one of the history's earliest uh, instances of that. So we have this odd place of starting where on the one hand we really are cagey about this idea of wanting to be a leader, but on the other hand our view of human responsibility and ethical agency in the world generally mandating involvement rather than disengagement. So we try and balance those two things and that, that, the nature of that balance really defines um, those very multiple diverse uh, discrepant individuals who we'll be very briefly looking at in this uh, series. So he began perhaps obviously with the very primordial type of the sacred warrior. We looked at Imam Shamil last time uh, and we drew the obvious comparison between his ethically constrained and diffident and unwilling <coughs> but militarily brilliant leadership of his people as they faced annihilation at the hands of orthodox ethnic cleansers and contrasted that with the pomp and circumstance of the Tsar with his winter palace and his servile nation 
and we saw that as a kind of latter-day instantiation of this <coughs> face-off, this timeless dichotomy. So the militant is an obvious form, perhaps the most obvious form. The primordial human society looks to the leader as somebody who will be a leader in war, not just the um, tribe in the uh, Australian outback, but uh, Churchill in the 1940s or whatever it might be. The ultimate responsibility of the leader is to be <coughs> someone who bears the sword. Uh, but there are many other forms of this, and one form which I wish to address today because it's very characteristically Islamic is the <coughs> scholarly and juridical form. So partly as a concomitant of our insistence that uh, human righteousness is achieved through going through the world with its veils of tears and its shadows and its challenges and its moral possibilities is that we have an idea of human life, personal life and collective life as potentially open to sanctification. And here again we seem to diverge from the Christian and the Buddhist traditions which have not evolved complex uh, apparatuses of sacred law. <coughs> In fact they have at times, canon law, an aspect of Buddhist law, but they're not really the centre of what the priest or the sage is teaching. In Islamic civilization, because we get to God through the world rather than by trying to edge anxiously around it, uh, we necessarily have the idea that there is a path to step through the world, <coughs> which is a holy path, and which actually provides us with a way of being transformed despite the manifest imperfections of uh, the, the world and the human collectivities with which we engage. And that's essential to Islam's moral and human vision. That's the anthropology of Islam. One of the great poets said, Cut the thick veils by avoiding them and cut the, the subtle veils by going through them. By thick veils he means mortal sins. You deal with the temptation to theft by avoiding it. But the subtle veils, the world, running a business, having a family, being a, the mayor of a town, these things which are part of our normal civic membership of, of Bani Adam, you deal with them not by avoiding them but by going through them. They're veils nonetheless and they're really distracting and they have many pitfalls but we go through them and this is kind of Islamic commandment. We, we go through those veils rather than simply sidestep them. So this idea of the world as something that we experience as full of human imperfections. Most of our conversation is taken up with criticisms of people and what they've done, whether it be you know, the Cambridge City Council cancelling a bus route, or whether it be Trump's latest argument with a journalist or whatever it is. Most of what concerns us is the manifest imperfection and difficulty of other human beings. Sometimes we might talk about the weather, but mostly it's other human beings, the human realm is by far the most interesting 
uh, realm of the created order, but it's also the most troubling. We get hurt more by human beings than we get hurt by other things in creation, by and large. Sometimes you might get bitten by a dog, or you might catch cold, or you might even drown at sea, but generally that which reach, reaches most deeply into our heart is the, the, the wounds caused by you know, the daggers of uh, an unsympathetic or an uncomprehending humanity. This is our weakness, that's our Achilles heel, each other. So to deal with this, to allow us to create a path through this minefield, uh, revelation envisages the possibility of smoothing that path and keeping those human, mainly human, dangers at bay. The Sharia sometimes deals with animals and floods, but its main concern is with human animals and human floods. Uh, and that's why the word sharia means way, means path. You, know, you get through this world. It's not an end in itself. Uh, those people, ah, oh, God forgive them, who say, the purpose of Islam is to establish the sharia. Mm, that's never narrated from any jurist of the past. That's, that's mistaking the means for the end. Purpose of Islam is to bring us to paradise, to bring us to God, to sort out our souls. Salim, the Sharia is a means to that end. Without boundaries, without this smooth path, we're going to be victims of human predators of a million different kinds. So we have this in our civilization uh, view that the function of law, legality, jurisprudence, all of these really dry things, is actually to facilitate salvation. They are an ethical exercise. They are not just utilitarian expressions of some kind of calculus about public interest. Uh, they can be redolent with holiness. This is strange sometimes for the Western mind to understand. They think that the public sphere should be regulated by matters of public usufruct and kind of utilitarian calculus, however hard in practice that is to bring about free speech versus the right to be protected from abuse and everything is kind of a compromise. Uh, but from the point of view of sacrality and the Islamic take on human responsibility, we raise everything to a much more interesting level. It's not just a kind of social science that could theoretically ultimately be quantified. If you knew all of the human variables, you could actually quantify somebody's utility mapped out against somebody else's. It's kind of, a computer could be a lawyer on that basis. But in our vision, no, it, it, it is a fundamental, one of the most fundamental human moral tasks. Because this is about creating a society that is godly and therefore in its structures satisfies humanity's more profound needs. It's not just that you have the right to be protected from being swindled online. Law has to do that. But it's also about being shaped in a way that uh, provides you with a, a personal and a societal and a family environment uh, that, that feeds you spiritually. 
So a different kind of exercise. And so the jurist in Islam, the faqih, literally is the one who understands. And part of Imam al-Ghazali's project was to remind us that the jurist really has to understand not just juggling different dalils of Qur'an and hadith and competing with rivals, which was the state jurisprudence had reached in his time, but rather to see that this is a sacred science, it is an art, which because human perfecting and perfectibility is something really beautiful, moral beauty even more amazing than physical beauty, that it is an aesthetic exercise of the highest order. So part of Ghazali's take on usul al-fiqh is that it's an aesthetic exercise to do with ihsan, doing what's beautiful. So we have this, and then at the same time, and part of the, the reason why we would classify this as art rather than science, it's a humanistic exercise in the real sense of humanism. It's for Bani Adam, not just for a kind of mortal primate, it's for Bani Adam, is that this tradition that we have is really multiple. And this, again, offends a lot of people nowadays, including Muslims. And it's important to grasp this when we look at the leader paradigms in our history who have been jurists. Very often, uh, under modern circumstances, where people are looking for what is right and are anxious about ongoing multiplicity, we tend to revere moral thinkers or jurists whose legacy seems to be a concordist one or one that makes the law kind of unified. After all, don't we want to know what Islam says about a given thing? What does Islam say about abortion? What does Islam say about prayer in the space station? Because we, we need answers. And that's a legitimate need. People look to religion for guidance. Similarly, Western historians of Islamic law have tended to proceed on the Enlightenment assumption that it is moving towards some kind of answer or uh, body of statutes, that the entire history of Islamic law can be understood essentially through a covert Western optic as a moving towards uh, some kind of agreement on what is moral and how society should be regulated, because that's taken to be what Western jurists have always looked for. They want to know what's right. And that, particularly the backdrop of, sort of transformations in uh, European law between the uh, Renaissance and the Enlightenment, took place partly against the kind of scientific background. After all, scientists want to know what's right. Science doesn't really like ambiguity unless you're a quantum mechanics expert, perhaps, in which case you're stuck with it, Schrodinger's cat. But basically, scientists want to know what's right. What is the correct chemical formula for potassium? There can only be one way of denoting it, and only one way in which it uh, reacts with other elements and produces compounds. The same with physics, laws of thermodynamics, science is totalizing in a certain way because the physical world, philosophers are still a bit staggered by this, the physical world is characterized by certain constants 
which are remarkably consistent and uniform. So to the extent that science has been the governing paradigm of Western civilization, it's often pushed social sciences and things like law and jurisprudence in the same kind of direction. We want to know what's right. In, particularly in the continental legal traditions. In England, we have more of a, quite a medieval legacy in many ways, case law and uh, all kinds of accumulating things in the common law. It's much messier and some would say closer and more intuitive to the actual reality of what goes on in the courts rather than being handed down like the Cour de Napoleon from some kind of philosophical set of supposed certainties. There's different ways of doing jurisprudence in the Western context, but nonetheless the tendency generally is for people to want to know what's right. Now, in the religious context, people also, as I've said, really want to know what's right. What's the right way to pray? Is it right for me to um, repeat my prayer if I've prayed four rakas for Maghrib or not? Or can I make up the extra rakah and what's right? Isn't it a zero-sum game? You can't, how could you possibly say both are right? It's like you can't be pregnant and not pregnant at the same time. It's either or. It's not kind of whoever, whatever. The modern tendency, particularly amongst Muslims who have been stung by Enlightenment triumphalism and whose understanding of their religious identity has been shaped and reshaped by a desire to react against the implicit or explicit critique levelled against their civilization by the West has been to try and turn Islamic law also into something unified and simple and comprised of certain statutes that do try to be right. This, however, is a profound revision and a strangeness in our civilization. And one of my favorite books. Um, published in 2011, quite recent, but already throwing the cat among the pigeons, is by Thomas Bauer, The Culture of Ambiguity. It's a German historian. And he looks at the classical text of Usul and the classical text of Fiqh and the classical text of Doctrine and all of those classical texts. Uh, and then he looks at modern equivalents and he finds that there's not just different answers a lot of the time, but also different reasons for finding those answers. Obviously, jurisprudence is not carried out in some kind of vacuum. The jurists have their culture, their preferences, their agenda, their maqasid, their human beings, they're embedded. What jurists in the Muslim world are finding now, what activists and headbangers, loudmouths of various kinds of particularly finding is certainty for the first time. They want uniformity. So the point of his book really is that sometime in the 19th century, Muslim jurists, Muslim theologians stopped being happy with multiplicity and started to be unhappy with it. So pre-modern Islam, he says, was uh, ambiguity friendly Whereas modern Islam is generally hostile to ambiguity. We don't like it, it makes us uncomfortable. Partly because of the desire to know what Islam says when modernity is criticizing it, we want answers. Rather than to say, well, according to Abu Hanifa and according to Shafi'i and 
the traditional response, and also because of the general ideological assumption in much modernist or uh, modernizing discourse, whether acknowledged or not, that there's a kind of scientific basis for these things and that there must be something. <coughs> right, so there's ambiguity tolerant Islam, which gives way under the impact of modernity to ambiguity intolerant Islam. And he dates this, as I've said, to the 19th century, gives lots of examples. A lot of the book is basically examples of this transformation, how modern Islam, whether reformist stroke liberal Islam or uh, fundamentalist Islam, they're both subject to this. This isn't just the shift to Salafia, this is most modern discourse as he sees it. Um, is uh, illustrated with a huge range of decisions. So he looks, for instance, at the great 15th century Qur'an expert, the expert on the variant readings of the Qur'an, the Qira'at, um, Ibn al-Jazari, <coughs> a real monument of philological and forensic textual genius. Uh, nowadays you think, he must be a German professor because it's just, the thing is the book is, Staggering, now one of our great monuments. And he points out that throughout Ibn al-Jazari is very happy with the idea that there can be different texts of the Qur'an, different readings. Maliki Yawmiddin, or Maliki Yawmiddin. You just document it, it doesn't matter. And then he looks at a lot of modern writers, including the former Saudi Mufti Ibn Uthaymeen, who really, really, really wanted to abolish them and say there's only one correct reading of the Qur'an. That he sees as symptomatic of what's happening in, in modern Islam, the desire for an answer. Um, similarly, he looks at uh, issues of fiqh, historically enormously diverse, inevitably, inexorably diverse, and points out how modern writers simply cannot um, abide this because of the insistence on a single way of reading the text. So he looks at Mawardi, it's a bit earlier, because it's 11th century. And Mawardi, the great Shafi'i jurist, great commentator on the Qur'an, who says the art of tafsir, of interpreting God's book, is to explore all of the different defensible interpretations. Maybe he'll give you a sense of what is his preference, but it's certainly not the purpose of the Muslim reader of the Quran to determine what the text definitely says. Occasionally, there's unambiguous nusus, but generally, there's a multiplicity of interpretation from the earliest period. And then he contrasts it with modern commentaries on the Quran, which seek typically to demonstrate the right reading. And again, he looks at Ibn Uthaymeen and his insistence that there's only one correct meaning of every verse of the Quran. And he proceeds for hundreds of pages, making his case pretty decisively. Islam has changed, he says, from being an ambiguity tolerant to an ambiguity intolerant tradition. And from then, of course, it's just a short step to the modern Muslim debate as to why everything is such a mess. Well, the answer is quite simple. Muslim societies are really diverse different sects, different orientations, rationalists, mystics, literalists, religious people, not so religious people, men, women, different languages. Every Muslim country, by and large, is really plural. That works with classical Islamic law, 
which is this ambiguity tolerant thing in which almost every decision is kind of a working conclusion. But if you try to impose a kind of modernist Islam on that, then immediately you have a detonation because most people can't accept it and can't recognize themselves in this form of Islam that is being imposed on them. So it looks like a, a very abstract text, but actually it has very significant repercussions. Um, what he doesn't pick out perhaps quite so evidently is the fact that the traditional paradigm is still alive amongst the traditional ulama who regard it as part of civilized religious scholarship to enjoy the plurality of conclusions and to respect that diversity. But the modern mind, whether liberalizing or neo-Moctezalite or feminist commentaries on the Quran or fundamentalist commentaries, they will want to find the one correct view and to lambast those who disagree with them. And this clearly is something that the traditional scholars will also be noticing and are noticing with perplexity. So this is one of the interesting dimensions of our tradition. We have this strong reverence for those who seek to rectify human beings individually and collectively by studying legal boundaries. And on the other hand, very consistently in Sunni Islam in particular, Shi'i Islam often has this idea of the imam of the age knows the correct view. But Sunni Islam is this kind of this consensual thing um, is something that is really not sufficiently understood. And a lot of modern Muslims get kind of fidgety when they're told that Islam is a tradition of ambiguity and multiplicity. Just read the classical text and you'll, you'll see it. Uh, uh, my friend Yahya Michel, who is at Hartford Seminary in America and is one of the experts on Ibn Taymiyyah, a real expert, translates he says he's an Ibn Taymiyyah addict. He just can't get to sleep at night unless he's translated something from Ibn Taymiyyah. He says the best way of dealing with Islamic radicalism is to teach prisoners classical Arabic and to have all of the works of Ibn Taymiyyah in the prison library. So that in all of those boring hours, they actually get to read the thing and they see the diversity of it. Even in Ibn Taymiyyah, who can be quite abrasive, when you actually see what he says about theologians and what he says about mystics, you see, well, he's part of a culture of ambiguity. That's the solution. The problem is not knowing and assuming that Islamic law is something like Western law. And the journalists do it. Islamic law is being introduced in northern Nigeria. Well, that means nothing to a traditional jurist. Which madhab? Which interpretation of the madhab? Who's doing it? What do they mean? Is it customary law? Um, but for journalists, of course, we know what Islamic law is, don't we? Or strict Islamic law sometimes. And Muslims get shaky because, oh dear, it looks like it's a disaster. And we are trapped in that false dichotomy. But we have nothing, nothing, nothing to do with that. So uh, Bauer's work is worth uh, perusing. And another book that I like is um, even more uh, recent uh, by Konrad Hirschler, published here in Cambridge, which is basically a study of the first comprehensive library catalogue that we have of a classical Sharia madrasa in the Middle East, and it's a madrasa al-Ashrafiya in Damascus. And it represents the books that the scholars thought should be in circulation. 
and it's enormously diverse when compared, say, to a monastery library in Europe at the time. Firstly, it's about 10 times bigger, but it's got everything there from Plato to the views of sects to Ismaili books to you name it, different madahib. <coughs> the scholarly tradition was part of a plurivocal world that was interested in multiplicity. So he writes, this tolerance made it possible to accept opposing systems of values and norms without necessarily insisting on the exclusive truth of one's own system. Intellectual life in these societies was thus less characterised by the quest for the one and only truth, but rather by searching for probable and likely answers. That's classical Islam. Sounds a bit like a modern university in a certain way, although it is, it is different. There is the presence of the divine and revelation, and you have material to work with. You have uh, a seafloor on which to fix your anchor, but um, it's certainly not the kind of ideological uh, take on Islam that is uh, increasingly provided. And again, not just by, say, the Islamic University of Medina, which tells you there's just one view, there's a correct view, and this hadith is sound, and this is uh, looking for the wahid, the one truth but also increasingly in much of the curriculum of regime-directed Islamic universities elsewhere in the Muslim world, where the regime wants people to reach a particular view on politics or democracy or gender or whatever it is, and everything is being defined as the true Islamic uh, view from the Minister of Religious Affairs or some general. So that subversion is very widespread. Um, Unfortunately, because you could say, in an age of multiple challenges, such as our own, Islamic law needs all of this wriggle room, and we need to have the capacity to respect this plurality, and not to feel uncertain when we're told that Islam is still working on questions that have been posed um, for more than a thousand years. So, what we find when we look at these leaders of jurisprudence is a remarkable balance between, on the one hand, an absolutely austere, uncompromising rectitude. These are kind of, sort of monastic figures and uh, ascetics, the four great jurists of early Islam, ascetic figures. You can imagine their personal gravamen and seriousness if you're with Ahmad bin Hanbal, who kind of, just the presence of the man would have been overwhelming. People for whom God is the master signifier of everything and the next world and the life in the grave are what everything is tending towards. But at the same time, they're the ones who recognize this plurality and actively promote it. Uh, what the Malikis called riayat al-khilaf, not just acknowledging that there's difference of opinions, but preserving it is an important principle in the Maliki Madhab, but generally, don't lose it. Make sure that the multiplicity is still there, because this is part of what God has intended. And the great Maliki jurist, Ashaltabi, famously explains that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had wished the Sharia to be just a single set of statutes, the revelation would have looked very different. So much in the Qur'an is hard to figure out. Difficult words. Some words in the Qur'an are acknowledged to be of basically mysterious significance. There's words in the Qur'an that do not appear anywhere else in the Arabic language, which is a language with a big literature. 
Why use that word rather than one that people could understand? Good question. The juristic consensus of pre-19th century of Islam was, as Shaltabi says, so that there could be divergence. So there could be this multiplicity, which nowadays, you know, what does the word mean? Because we tend to do things with translation, and these things are one reason for the untranslatability of the Qur'an is that you have to come down on the side of a particular belief as to what a particular verse means. You can't maintain the ambiguity in a translation unless you're some kind of translation super genius. The translation is not the original, partly because it can't conserve the ambiguities of the original text. But the Qur'an itself says this, a very interesting thing to find in a world scripture where it talks about itself. The self-awareness of the Qur'an is always quite exceptional. Surah Al-Imran, verse 7, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytani rajim Bismillahi rahmani rahim Huwa alladhi anzala alayka al-kitaba minhu ayatun muhkamatun hunna ummu al-kitab wa ukharu mutashabihat He is the one who has sent down upon you, singular, the book in which are clear verses, they are the mother of the book, and others are mutashabih. Even translating that is a headache for translators. But ambiguity is one possible uh, interpretation for this. So in the Qur'an, we have necessarily the beginnings of a religion of diversity, a culture of ambiguity. The text seems to impose that. The hadith even more so. We're the only religion with an absolutely gigantic and oceanic scriptural basis. Maybe a million different hadith reports. It's said to be the pre-modern world's largest single body of literature. And it's revelation of different degrees. And there's the Sahih, and the Da'if, and the Mursal, and the Munqata', and the Hasan, and the Gharib, and dozens of other categories, simply on the basis of the uh, soundness or dubiousness of attribution. That's before you get into the question of what it actually means, what the context might have mean, or whether it's bound by context, or whether it's a general view, or what the Sahaba might have made of those hadiths, or whether there's a consensus on the meaning of those hadiths. It's an enormous cornucopia that has been preserved for us because of the love that the first generations had of the Holy Prophet and the determination that not one of those pearls should ever be lost. We have this mountain of hadiths. Uh, You can't construct a fundamentalism on the basis of a scripture like that. Can't do it. You cannot do fundamentalism in Islam because it's just too enormous, too diverse. There's too much of it. And it's never even been combined in a single collection, a single scripture. The Qur'an, the time of Sayyidina Uthman, subsequently was the Mus'haf, which we have today. The Hadith, it's in hundreds of collections. Imam Suyuti tried, died before he could finish it. Others tried, it's just too much, too big. And arguments as to whether something is from a Sahabi or from the Holy Prophet, or whether the Sahabi thing is considered hadith, and it can't be done. So you can't have fundamentalism in the Islamic context in the sense of the simple, literal understanding of what the revelation says. There's too much of it, it's too diverse. It's not intended to be that. So all the jurists of Islam are legal leaders, have seen that as a kind of obvious first-order truth. It is not the divine intention 
that Islam is the simple formula, doctrine is this, and this is how we do that, and this is always how a divorce has to happen, and this is always how you have to rule a country. It's multiple. It's endlessly multiple, and this is part of the greatness of it. So, uh, if you look at a text of where it classifies uh, scriptural statements, you get chapter headings like this. The unequivocal, the perspicuous, unclear words, obscure, difficult, ambivalent, general, specific, absolute, qualified, literal, metaphorical, homonyms. That's just for the Qur'an. For the Hadith, even more so. So, this is kind of the Muslim response to Bawa's historian's observation, which is that not only is it a reality that pre-modern Islamic law and to a considerable extent doctrine and certainly mysticism is endlessly multiple, uh, but this is actually intended by the revealer of the scripture. Otherwise, why is it so hard to understand? So much. Some of it, despite all of the current rhetoric about Kitab wa Sunnah, has not even been properly edited in a critical way. Yeah. I was involved with the project to edit the Musnad of Ahmad bin Hanbal. And we found over a hundred hadiths that weren't included, weren't included in any of the existing printed editions. Because those editions had been based on late manuscripts or had just been very carelessly collocated. And nowadays you have movements that are turning countries upside down on the basis of their literal reading of texts that aren't even accurate texts and are different from the manuscripts. Not impressive. So uh, ours cannot be a fundamentalist tradition. But its juridical custodians, those who are aware of the enormous burden of responsibility, the amana that they carry from God, uh, the ulama warathatul anbiya, heirs to the prophets, which is the CMC logo, that's um, quite a heavy thing to carry, quite a frightening place to stand, are the ones who are sure that this ambiguity is maintained within due boundaries and that absurdity and frivolity can't intrude into it. The Ahl-Sunnah is this big family of discussions and methodologies and conclusions, but it does have certain limits. The word mubtadir, heretical, reprehensible, innovator, still has a meaning. Nobody says there's six obligatory prayers every day. Certain things are really clear. So that's another of our interesting tensions. We have a religion whose texts are telling us that Muslims can't be fundamentalists if they read the texts. On the other hand, we have this remarkable consistency of many of our forms. Isn't that interesting? That the Christians, there are plenty of Christian fundamentalists who believe in the literal inspiration of the King James Bible, and yet the way in which they worship is a million different ways, and it changes all the time. You don't know what you're going to see next in some of those churches. You know, the, the preacher comes in and he's wearing a tuxedo and a bow tie and there's a guy with an organ and it's like Vegas and curtains and people eating donuts in the mega church. Well, the only thing you're not going to see there is how Sayyidina Isa used to pray. They don't even think that that might be a good thing to follow. We do have this principle of precedent of Sunnah which through the jurists responsible and egoless filtration of everything 
and their merciful regard for what human beings need creates a consistent religion. So multiplicity, hardwired into the logic, the circuit boards of the religion's hard drive, but at the same time we have forms that seem to be more consistent and uniform than in other religions, and that's another funny thing, isn't it? You go into a mosque, and you're not going to see the imam wearing a tuxedo and somebody with a kind of Vegas organ and little kind of roll of drums when somebody comes on to do truth and testimony time. If you see that stuff, you'll see how decadent it is. No, you will not see that. In any mosque out of the 10 million mosques that exist in the Ummah, you won't see one where they're doing that. So that's another of our interesting accomplishments. A culture of ambiguity, we like ikhtilaf, ri'ayat al-khilaf, that's what it is to be part of the sunnah wa jama'ah. But on the other hand, out of this non-fundamentalist tradition, this culture of ambiguity, we get forms that are, within certain boundaries, quite consistent and unsurprising. You go into a mosque, you're pretty certain as to what you're going to see. They might trick out the mosque with all kinds of weird things. Ambala sweet centre calendars, can't avoid them, and tinsel, and Ya Muhammad, who knows what they're going to put in there. But the form of the prayer, nobody dares to fiddle with that, ever. Yeah. Or there'd be a riot. Half of Pakistan would start shouting in the streets, and nobody's going to do that. So this is another of the interesting civilization accomplishments of our civilization. Now another aspect of this, and I haven't even got on to my leader of today yet, maybe he'll have to wait a bit, is uh, the nature of the law which these people are the custodians of. I've mentioned it's not statutory law, because one of the things that these jurists are doing is not accepting any kind of external regulation. There's no legislature. There's no House of Lords or monarch, the ultimate source of legality. No symbol of the crown on court documents. It's not a, a Muslim court is not a crown court. Uh, and this, again, is often misunderstood by modern Muslims. And Bauer doesn't talk about this so much, but Wa'il Halak, who's at Columbia University, who's maybe the most respected Western expert on uh, Sharia, um, does see this very clearly, and some of his recent books have been about this, the way in which Muslims nowadays look at Islamic law, or really a problematic, inadequate translation of Sharia, and try and turn it into something that looks like Western law, statutory law. So this is um, one of his recent books. He keeps writing books, and they get heavier and heavier. Um, he's an erudite and an interesting person. And he, of course, recognizes diversity, the fact of uh, differences of opinion. So page 364 is representative of what he has found. He's not a Muslim, Palestinian Christian origin. The central fact is that Islamic law is a grassroots system that takes form and operates within the social universe. It travels upward with diminishing velocity to affect in varying degrees and forms the modus operandi of the state. So the law is shaping the state, but the law comes up from the population from below. 
That's strange. The jurists themselves emanate from the very society and societal culture that they serve, and the law's ideology and doctrine required that they be so. In other words, it's not the state that is appointing professors of jurisprudence and enacting the laws, and it all comes down from above. It's society itself that is producing the jurists and the law and the judges, and the state is effect affected by this. It's passive, not active. It is one of the most striking features of Islamic law as a doctrinal and jural system that it is generated at the very social level on which it is applied. In sharp contradistinction, the law of the nation-state is superimposed from a central height in a downwards direction, first originating in the mighty powers of the state apparatus and thereafter, de uh, thereafter deployed in a highly structured but deliberately descending movement to the individuals constituting the social order, those individuals who are harnessed as national citizens, fathers and mothers in the nation's families, economically productive agents, taxpayers, soldiers, etc., a society subject to Islamic law is one that is largely self-governing, in which law and the morality intertwined with it largely operates in the interests of that society. By contrast, a society subject to the nation-state is one that is ruled from above, and so on. So he's drawing attention to another of our strange paradoxes when we look at the Sharia and those who are leaders in determining the Sharia, that it is not statutory law. And that historically actually is strange. It's unlike what the Chinese did or the Romans did. It's odd for the state not to legislate. What does the Sultan do? Well, he's busy with his new loot or with his slaves or with whatever, but uh, he can declare war. Sometimes he can appoint chief judges, but he doesn't legislate. The state doesn't legislate in the Sharia, and that's pretty consistent. So in a more recent book, Wa'il Halaq, uh, well, the book is called The Impossible State, where he looks at the various explosions and implosions and catastrophes of the modern Muslim world where Sharia is being proposed as the nation's law. And he says, that's not how the Sharia works. Look at the text. Sharia is not statutory law. You cannot have the Pakistani parliament saying, this is the Islamic law on blasphemy and it becomes right for the country, because Islamic law does not give the parliament or the state that right. It's God's law interpreted by the jurists in a million different ways. As soon as the state starts to impose it, you've got some totalitarian thing with the government making ijtihad and determining which of these multiple ambiguous solutions is correct. What right does the government have to exercise ijtihad? Other uh, members of the Pakistani military or parliament super geniuses in Ijtihad and the gradations of Hadith, I don't think so. So he says, this is the greatest legal system ever evolved in human history. <laughs> and towards the end of the book, he suggests ways in which you can overcome much of the modern disjuncture of Western law. But the modern Islamist model of the Islamic state is completely alien to the Islamic uh, legal system. We don't have statutory law, the government doesn't legislate. Instead, you've got a space, almost an anarchic space, where communities and religious communities are self-regulating with their own laws, appointing their own judges. Uh, anyway, so this is important for us to understand that Islamic law is very surprising. Uh, but this has nothing to do with, and this needs to be emphasized, 
Nothing to do with some kind of latitudinarianism, as if truth doesn't matter and morality isn't important. This is a very moralizing society. And this law is uh, determined by interpreters who are uh, not messing around. But uh, the guiding assumption, that which unites them, is that it's not such a true law, and it's never going to be united, and the texts are not designed to be read by fundamentalists. So let's look at the leader that I wanted to cite as an example, as an exemplum figure, perhaps as the first of whom we have extensive documentation because we have his views, his fatwas, his book still to hand, uh, which is Imam Malik, Imam Malik ben Anas. So let's see how he fits into this. Um, bit of biodata, first of all, in his context. Remember, the Islamic revelation has happened blowing the minds of the pagan Arabs who didn't even have a law before it arrives, blowing the minds of the Byzantines and the Persians who want a state law, and this is not going to be state law. Uh, it's something really unusual in radical discontinuity with what went before. And because of the nature of the sources, which in the early period had, were even less systematized and filtered and graded than was the case later on. Of course, early Islamic law, really diverse. Amongst the Sahaba, Islamic law was differently interpreted. Some of the Sahaba were considered to be muftis. Sometimes they say there were 10 of the Sahaba who could give judgments in Islamic law. Most of them were not. You might go to Ibn Abbas for a religious judgment. You wouldn't go to Abu Huraira for a religious judgment, by and large, because he wasn't recognized as mufti, even though he knew um, a mountain of, of hadith. So in the earliest period, the idea of jurist, jurists experts in the fiqh, the understanding of the law, rather than people who just kind of went through their hard drive and cited a relevant hadith, which as we've seen is not, is not going to work, um, was, was pretty normative. So um, he is born, we don't know exactly when, towards the end, maybe in the 90s of the second Islamic century. Pretty early. Uh, and becomes uh, an expert quite early on. As a child, we're told that his mother, seeing his interest in learning and the prophetic legacy, put on the formal kind of clothes of a student of hadith and said, go to the mosque in Medina and, and learn. So he was young, and you find that the hadith that he narrates have amazingly incomparably short isnads a lot of the time because he's kind of close to that age. He's meeting people in Medina who knew the Sahaba. So uh, that becomes one of the watchwords of his method. Born in Medina, dies in Medina, buried in Medina. If you look at old Ottoman pictures, you can see his tomb is one of the biggest domes in Al-Baqir. He is the Alim al-Madina, the scholar of Medina. And uh, from an early age becomes really paradigmatic of the sobriety and um, austerity of that particular type. He is not the sort of 
playful, whimsical postmodern scholar that you encounter nowadays. He was a man of deadly seriousness. Um, we know a bit about his appearance because Abu Hanifa, who visited him once, Abu Hanifa's son, Hamad, visits him several times and takes from him, but Abu Hanifa meets him one. Malik doesn't really leave Medina ever except for Hajj. Um, he calls him uh, uh, Al-Azraq. So we're pretty clear that he had blue eyes. Couldn't DNA test him, but um, it seems that his father was from the Asbah tribe of Yemen, but his mother was from the Mawali convert background. We don't really know. So this becomes significant for Malik, even though he's in this Arab city of Medina, where all the great poets of the time are. Medina is a great center of Arabic. Uh, literature. Uh, but he has an openness in his fiqh for the uh, non-Arab, which is important. I'm going to go on about this, uh, but it needs to be said in our communities that one of the most startling and shocking aspects of the Islamic revolution was that your DNA didn't actually matter too much. You learn your ancestry and you can take pride in a virtuous or a generous great-grandfather, that's fine. Take pride in their virtues. Uh, but it doesn't have legal significance, whereas for pre-Islamic Arabia, the, who you were, your rights, who would stand up for you, is determined entirely by your tribe. So uh, he was happy to allow, at a time of very considerable, time of the Bani Umayyah, Arab chauvinism, uh, a lot of discrimination against uh, converts in the name of kind of Arab pride. The insistence that they continue to pay the jizya even after converting because they weren't really proper Arabs. A lot of discriminations in terms of official and military appointments. Uh, Imam Malik was on the side of the equality of believers and this needs to be recalled. Just this morning, I got another of those emails African girl being proposed to uh, by somebody of Arab origin. Hmm. Uh, they want to get married. Sharia doesn't object. But the Arab parents say no. Why? Because she's of African origin. Full stop. End of story. What can they do? Just this morning this comes. Still. 14 centuries after this prophetic revolution, that's still how we are. So don't think that learning about the early Islamic time is just about the move towards the Islamic perfection which we now inhabit. The Jahiliyyah is often for many Muslims and Muslim families and Muslim governments more significant than any Islamic values. So we need to recall that. Uh, uh, Yep, so he is brought up in the city of Medina and as a young person and as a child he saw the people of Medina's veneration for anything that was still there from the time of the Holy Prophet the Athar of the Rasul. This has always been part of the culture of the people of Medina, that you have reverence for it in a kind of physical way, which is why he never in his life rode an animal, a horse or a mule or a donkey in Medina, um, just out of respect. 
Imam Atta ibn Abi Rabah, uh, who was another great jurist of the time, when he went into the mosque to pray, uh, would always touch the minbar before praying in order to absorb some of the, the blessed memory of the prophetic time. And then one of the khalifas heard that the minbar of this great mosque was just a kind of old wooden thing that it had been at the time of the Holy Prophet. Uh, said that he was going to replace it with this great kind of ivory and ebony and jeweled thing and the people of Medina protested and Imam Malik says I don't think that it's right that people should be deprived of the the relics of Allah's messenger this is always important for the people of Medina in particular every little well uh, when I was living in Saudi Arabia, there were people who would go out to this car park. And in the car park, there was a kind of scratched area. Somebody had taken a brick or something, just traced out this kind of rectangle the size of a prayer cart. People go there and pray. Uh, because it's narrated by the people of Medina that the Holy Prophet وسلم, once prayed two rakahs in that place. And even though there's a supermarket and the car park, and it's kind of like some American city, just to look at it, but with palm trees, and so maybe it's Miami. Uh, there's this rectangle, and the people will go there still to pray their two rakas, the people of Medina, and the wells, and the mountains, and they know where everything is. It's part of what they've in, in, uh, inherited from the age of the uh, Salaf. So the whole city is kind of redolent with fragrant blessings from the holy prophets time. Um, so he's brought up in a house of um, uh, learning uh, and one of his teachers was uh, Nafir, who uh, is one of the figures of the so-called golden chain, Malik's, uh, also Bukhari's preferred Isnad, just Malik from Nafir from Ibn Omar, from the Holy Prophet. So just two intermediaries. And so a very high isnad, as they say, short. Um, and these absolutely reputable puritanical figures, Ibn Abbas, very ascetical, Nafir, his great student, and he's telling Imam Malik directly. So that hadith could not possibly be open to any kind of interpolation or fabrication. It's just kind of a first order truth that that is a genuine narration. Yeah, so we find in the first century amongst the Sahaba and the Tabi'in a certain reverence for the city of Medina and for its fiqh. Uh, so Abdullah ibn Omar who just mentioned, um, heard that the Khalifa, this is Abdul Malik bin Marwan, the one who built the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, Qubbat al-Sakhra, was involved uh, in arbitrating a legal dispute <coughs> uh, between ju two jurists and trying to figure out which of them was right. So Ibn Omar wrote to him saying, in kuntuma, this is to the two jurists, turidani al-mashwara fa'alaykuma bidar al-hijra was sunnah if you want good counsel, 
then follow the Dar al-Hijrah and the Sunnah. So in the earliest period we find this reverence for the uh, prophetic fragrance of the city, <coughs> which still contained uh, a community which was in continuity with the prophetic age, unlike some of the garrison towns for start in Egypt, Kufa in Iraq, Muslims in Damascus, the Sahaba had spread to many places, but the local tradition was a new tradition, whereas Medina was in continuity with that early age, and there had been so little opportunity for it to, uh, to, uh, to change. So Imam Malik, I've mentioned a kind of saintly individual, but of the rather stern variety, the Jalal type. So, uh, and his reverence for the Sunnah was that he would never give a fatwa unless he had wudu. If he was asked for a hadith sometimes, he would go back to his house and do a ghusl before coming to narrate a hadith, just out of reverence. It's not required for the validity of hadith narration, but just out of the kind of awe in which he held the prophetic legacy and his knowledge of the onerous responsibility of saying that God's messenger had said something. Um, because of his fearfulness of getting things wrong, whenever he issued a fatwa, he was famous for saying, la hawla wa la quwata illa billah. This is exactly what we mean by the Islamic model of leadership. You don't want to do it. It's your moral obligation to transmit something that you know to be true from the Holy Prophet You can't hide that light under a bushel, but it's really scary. You don't want to distort people's knowledge of revelation. So because of his own self-knowledge, his own understanding of his weakness and of the momentous business that he was embarked upon, he would begin with this, La hawla wa la illa billah. I have to do this. Not. Here I am, and I'd like to thank His Majesty for inviting me to this splendid Islamic conference, and we're so grateful to the catering staff, and here we are, and I accept this medal on behalf of the Muslim, whatever. Instead of that performance, which we have nowadays, which is just a performance, la hawla wa la quwata illa billah, he's being asked to relate from the best of creation. He doesn't want to do it, but he knows he has to do it, and this is famous, this is part of his sort of fastidious moral nature, his conscience uh, imposes it upon him. Also making sure that he would only speak uh, when he uh, had consulted with others. That's part of his leadership, I guess. He said he didn't give his first fatwa until he had consulted with 79 ulama on that fatwa. <coughs> Nowadays, you know, we give everybody's mufti you post something on YouTube, and by the next day you've got 50 fatwas in bad English. This is haram, this is sunnah, mashallah. Everybody's mufti nowadays. Uh, but he was not like that, and would consult and would consult and would consult until he gave the view that he considered to be correct. Yeah, one of his uh, teachers was called Rabia. Rabi'at al-Ra'i was his subriquet, and this becomes one of the features uh, of fiqh in this early period. Ra'i means kind of a considered 
deliberation. It doesn't just mean opinion. Ra'i is a very specific kind of view that you take on the basis of certain uh, processes that you've gone through. Very often, and this is starting to come to our awareness now in modern scholarship, uh, we assume that in this formative period there wasn't really a legal methodology. There wasn't an usul al-fiqh, as we later assume from Ghazali and Amidi and those amazingly complicated things with 20 different types of qiyas. Uh, the old assumption was that there's a formative period of Islamic law when things are kind of chaotic and people are giving views just on the basis of what they think might be right. And this is a position identified with somebody called Josef Schacht in particular, who was active in the mid-20th century and was one of the great professors of the history of Islamic law, who had this idea of the formative period and ancient schools of Islamic law, the school of the Hejaz, the school of Iraq particularly. Um, and then Imam Shafi'i comes at the end of this formative period and with his famous Risala explains a methodology for the first time on how you deal with the Qur'an and the Sunnah and you deduce the law. Um, that's been a very widely held view. More recently we have learnt to challenge that. Um, Dr. Omar Abdullah, for instance, um, who has, it was his PhD thesis, but he published it recently, Malik and Medina. The point of his book really is to show that if you really look at Malik's uh, judgments and you reconstruct the reasoning behind them, you can see that he was also operating with something you can certainly call usul al-fiqh. It's not a kind of arbitrary, careless, random deploying of hadiths, the way we often do it nowadays. Instead, there's a rigorous methodology behind it which you can reconstruct. What he didn't publish was a book on how to do it, but he nonetheless had his usul. And the same goes for Abu Hanifa and Al-Awza'i, certainly, and the other early schools. It's just that Shafi actually wrote it down and it from that time on became a kind of literary genre in Islamic civilization. But to assume that the fiqh was kind of chaotic <coughs> in the first couple of centuries simply underestimates the, again, fastidious precision with which these people um, researched the sources and the um, reluctance that they had to actually express their, their opinions. This wasn't an age in which people were just uh, uh, randomly hold forth. So Rabia is one of his uh, teachers. Rabia famous for giving views without apparent uh, prophetic support. The reason for that being that in the city of Medina, the practice of the city of Medina could be interpreted as being uh, a reliable recollection of the prophetic practice, or that um, he had hadiths or other early texts, um, but just didn't cite them in offering his position. So that's Rabia, one of his teachers. Another was uh, Ibn Hormuz. Um, Ibn Hormuz seems to have had a book which in some ways was the kind of precedent of the Muatta, which is the famous book which we sometimes think is a hadith collection, although it's not, which is uh, identified with Imam Malik. Ibn Hormuz also seems to have had uh, this uh, uh, text and he's uh, a text of that type. Uh, Ibn Hormuz, again emblematic of this type of scholarly leader who 
doesn't want to pretend that he has the answers. One of the famous things that every student learns about Imam Malik is that he would say, I don't know, a lot of the time. Once some people came, asked him 42 questions, and he said, I don't know, let Adri to 36 of them. They've travelled to Medina to get the right answer, or at least his preferred opinion. He said, let Adri, let Adri, I don't know, I don't know. A bit disappointing. It's like going to sort of the Chief Justice saying, what's your view on this case? I don't know. Kind of, uh, the Attorney General, I don't know. It doesn't happen nowadays, partly because they'd lose their job if they kept saying that. Yeah. Um, but uh, it is from their diffidence and their control of their egos, because uh, the odium academicum, the, the besetting effort or sin of academics is that they always want to have an answer to everything and that it's kind of lets the, lets the side down if in a monograph or in a conference you say, I don't know, who knows? Um, you're not supposed to do that. You don't get tenure by saying, I don't know. Every time somebody asks you a question in an interview, the whole system is directed really towards propping up people's egos so people wing it and they come up with reasons that they may not actually believe in. And this is something Imam Ghazali talks about, you know, the, the bad scholar who pretends to know, but doesn't. So he gets this from Ibn Hormuz, uh, and it becomes Malik's watchword, really. So, Qala Malik, Samirtu Ibn Hormuz in Yaqul, Yanbari an Yurith al-Alimu Julasa ahu qawla la adri. Malik said, I heard Ibn Hormuz saying, it is right for the scholar to teach his associates the words, I don't know. That's a good piece of advice for a scholar. Um, but why is this the case? Well, he explains the kind of man that he's studying with. I would visit Ibn Hormuz. He would order the servant to shut the door and close the curtains, and then he would speak about the early days of this ummah, and tears would run down his beard. It's another type, a contrite type of scholar. Nostalgic for the lost fragrant days of early Islam, part of the Hadith scholars, and indeed the jurist's task is to try and recreate something of the, the unique uh, spiritual immediacy of the early days of the Ummah. Sometimes we're told that Imam Malik, in order to get to his view, would not allow himself to sleep or to eat or to drink while he was researching something. It wouldn't be like the modern scholar who gets up and has a Starbucks and then talks to his friends and then gets back to something and then postpones it. No, he want, when he wanted to do something, he would focus on it in the there and now and not do anything until he'd come to uh, his view on it. Yep, so he's translated, transmitting from these scholars, fiqh, and Ra'i and Hadith. He has other teachers as well. Um, Ja'far al-Sadiq and his father Muhammad al-Baqir, who we tend to think of as Shi'i authors. In this early period, the Shi'a were a kind of political legitimist movement rather than a denomination. Um, so there was no problem with Abu Hanifa and Imam Malik associating as equals with jurists, later identified with Shi'i lines. Um, 
with Az-Zuhri, Nafir, and others, you might say, well, this is all a bit provincial. He's sitting in Medina. Shouldn't a scholarly leader, particularly in Islamic culture, which we assume is the culture of Rehla and traveling everywhere, shouldn't he travel? Isn't this odd he's just staying there? Well, the answer is because he's in Medina, the world travels to him. Most of the Hajjis go through Medina or visit Medina on their way to Hajj. That includes the scholarly elite. So he gets to see people from around the Ummah and he goes out of his way to get to know them. Because the principle of juridical leadership in Islam is that you don't just know the books, but you know the people to whom the law applies. And regional variation is something that is an axiom in Sharia. Not in matters of worship, but in matters of uh, personal law uh, and the actual practice of the court because uh, the, the judge has far more discretion and leeway in an Islamic court to see what actually is natural justice in a circumstance than Western statutory law, where the judge can't do anything. You've done something outrageous online, but the law hasn't caught up with that outrageous thing yet. There's no way in which society can penalize you. But in Islamic law, the, the judge does have the right not to impose a death sentence, but to impose some kind of custodial sentence or a fine if you've done something that he thinks is wrong, even if there's no statute, which is another thing that seems strange to the Western consciousness. So that often depends on the culture of individuals. And the ruling might be different for different families or for different regions because of what the local perception of natural justice might be. So Imam Malik is actually, he's got his finger on the pulse of the Ummah just by being in Medina uh, and meeting all of these uh, jurists. And that's one reason why this apparently very local madhab becomes global because his approach is being taken out. Um, so his school spreads quite quickly in Egypt, North Africa, um, even during his uh, lifetime. Um, it was always experienced as being a kind of practical and workable system of law. I've mentioned that it did have usul, but these weren't conceived as an elaborate philosophical jurisprudential structure, uh, but rather focused on the Imam's close knowledge of people's actual circumstances and his awareness of the purpose of the law, which is a taysir, to make human life easier under God. So uh, there's a lot of things in the madhab uh, such as taqdeer, sort of estimating what something ought to be, if you don't have a clear hadith for it. Farad, certain assumptions, presuppositions, uh, based not on a random subjective sense of what ought to be right, but on his life experience of dealing with the praxis of a righteous city and of human nature. Because of his lifelong experience of litigants, and of jurists and of just dealing with the marketplace and just people in Medina and hearing cases from strange places around the world from scholars who came to visit him. Uh, his idea of juridical leadership was based on somebody who really knew society and was part of it, which again is part of the, uh, what I began by saying, the characteristic Islamic vision that uh, we go through the world to get to the other side rather than try and tiptoe around it. In the Catholic context, people will say, 
Well, the priest is advising me on my marriage or how to do with my children. The priest has never been in that space. Who are these old guys in the Vatican to write big encyclicals about family life? It's odd. Uh, whereas in the Islamic context, because the jurist is absolutely part of society and marries and has children and might participate in wars and has a business or a shop, uh, it's on the basis of that close experience of the gritty reality, uh, the texture of human life, that the jurist acquires this, this firasa, this uh, spiritual aesthetic insight into what sounds like good law, which is absolutely necessary given the complexity of the revealed sources. There has to be this ra'i, this inspired, considered judgment. Again, this is not a fundamentalist age and not a fundamentalist uh, community. And one of the famous heroic leadership incidents of uh, the life of Imam Malik, and there's a famous parallel in the life of Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal, underlines this fact that the law is not determined by the state which is that the caliph, sitting in his palace in Baghdad, which is this kind of outrageous thing with seven concentric walls and moats and guards from different countries and a pet lion that guards the throne, and it's that kind of Arabian Nights world. Malik doesn't want to go near that. The caliph, sitting on this throne, thinks, wouldn't it be nice to have a single law for my empire? Maybe the Byzantines have got that Justinian code, and that I could be in charge. I'd have much more power if I controlled the law. And these jurists don't want me to have anything except my throne and my lion and my name in the khutbahs. And, um, I'd like a bit more than that, please. So uh, the Khalifa tries to throw his weight around by compelling leading jurists to issue judgments that the Khalifa approves of. So, Al-Mansur is the first really significant Abbasid caliph. Um, sends Imam Malik a messenger telling him not to narrate a particular hadith, Laysa ala al-mustakrahin talaq, which is that forced divorce is invalid. In the Sharia, you can't force somebody to divorce you know, somebody else. And the Khalif wants to get rid of this, partly because of the Abbasid forcible assumption of power and the idea everybody had been forced to take bay'ah. This still goes on, of course. Some new king or tyrant appears in a Muslim country and everybody has to say, Saman wa ta'a, we pledge our obedience to you. And you're forced to do that. The Abbasids were forcing people to do this after their very violent, brutal um, revelation, uh, revolution. And so the analogy from this legitimacy of a forced divorce was important. And Imam Malik gets this messenger and says, uh, no. Uh, and so the governor of Medina is ordered to seize and flog Imam Malik and puts him on the rack so he's physically stretched and his shoulder is dislocated and he passes out. The pain is so great that he, he loses consciousness. And they loosen the rack and he comes to and is asked, well, uh, are you going to continue with this hadith that uh, his royal highness doesn't like? And he says... I forgive Al-Mansur. Why are you forgiving the Khalifa for torturing you? I forgive him because I don't want to meet God on the Day of Judgment having said something bad about somebody from the prophetic family. It's a kind of 
way around it, but it's also indicative of the greatness. He's not kind of cursing and screaming. He forgives uh, the Khalifa. The Khalifa has taken a different view, which he doesn't agree with, um, but he's not going to start screaming and cursing. So uh, he's not going to stop narrating this hadith, and so the, the police of the time shave off his beard and mount him on a camel and parade him through Medina, looking ridiculous. And then he's ordered to condemn himself aloud in front of everybody, but he says, man, arafani, arafani. I may look strange today, but whoever knows me will recognize me. My name is Malik ibn Anas, and I say, laysa ala mustakrahi talaq. Forced divorce is illicit. So the caliph hears of this and says, well, I can't really go any further. He's stubborn. Who let him go, and so he's released. So that's an example of leadership that in extremists, you know, these early Abbasids are very brutal. They've even dug up the bodies of the Bani Umayyah and thrown the uh, remains to the dogs. They're kind of vicious. Uh, they're doing this to Imam Malik, and it's a kind of important political thing that they're trying to force him to do, but he will not accede. Um, another great uh, Abbasid caliph, Harun al-Rashid, the famous one of the Arabian Nights, was in Medina and wanted to go to Imam Malik's class. And the Khalifa has his chair brought. Everybody's sitting on the floor, the Khalifa is on his chair. And Imam Malik stops talking and indicates that the Khalifa should sit on the floor along with all of the students. Harun says, "Mm, well, can you send them away so I can read you some hadiths and you can give me ijazah in these hadiths? And Malik says, if ordinary people are not allowed to attend because of the wealthy, How are the wealthy going to benefit? In other words, it's in your interest to be with these other students. This is not a kind of private thing. Can I have a private session with you, please, Sheikh? I don't want to be with those people because they don't really know very much and they're all people I don't approve of. No, this is, the Imam is very happy to ask the Khalifa to sit on the floor. And this is leadership and he kind of gets away with it even though he's beaten and stretched and has his beard shaven off because he will not make concessions and this is why we still revere his name and his madhab is still followed by so much of the ummah, maybe 15% of the ummah is Maliki. Uh, So when put to the test, he doesn't buckle. Nowadays, some ulama do buckle. The Grand Mufti of here or the Minister of Awqaf of there threatened, sometimes quite in quite blood-curdling terms, by <coughs> this, that, or the other sultan or general or whoever it might be, will say, all right, every khutbah in my Gulf country is now going to be only about obeying the ruler and the wonderfulness of the ruler, and we won't have any other subjects, and that's what we're going to do, and this is what happens. This would not be the way of Imam Malik, who was a dignified man and must have found this very <coughs> humiliating. We're told he always dressed well and he had a nice house. He wasn't the kind of barefoot um, dervish type. He believed that scholars should 
should look good. And this was terribly humiliating for him, but he wasn't going to capitulate. Uh, and that is an important lesson for our age when regimes try to control the Sharia or abolish the Sharia or get scholars to give some crazy statement and pressurize them. Unfortunately, if you're going to be a scholar, you have to say what Imam Malik says each time he's giving a fatwa. La hawla wa la quwata illa billah. Even if this means I have to go to jail, this is God's religion. This is the way of the Holy Prophet. This is God's law. This is how it is. And um, there have been some, though perhaps not enough, heroic instances of this in the recent years. So um, we should move on to consider, although we've already learnt a certain amount about him, uh, his books, or, well, his book really, but there are two that are significant in the early spread of his madhab. <coughs> These are amongst the most influential texts in Islam. Uh, the first of them is Al-Muwatta. People think, well, this is the sixth or the seventh of the uh, sacred six hadith collections, which is a very kind of popular way of seeing this. There's six sound hadith collections, but in fact they're sound hadiths in collections that most of us will probably never have heard of. Another reason why you can't be a fundamentalist in Islam is that these hadiths are so numerous and spread very widely. <coughs> All of these people who don't even know Arabic who are telling you what Islam is yelling away on YouTube because of Mohsin Khan's translation of Bukhari. Which version of Bukhari is he using? They don't know there's different versions of Bukhari. Uh, it's uh, a sorry sign of our decadence, unfortunately. There's plenty of hadiths that aren't in these hadith collections. Hadith in Musnad al-Shihab. Hadiths in uh, al-Kabir, Mu'tim al-Kabir al-Tabarani. Hadiths in the Musannaf of Abd al-Razaq or Ibn Abi Shaiba, dozens and dozens and hundreds of hadith collections, which also have hadith in them that the jurists will know and will take into consideration of this scripturalizing of the sound six, as if Islam is the book, and six more books, is a complete aberration and a kind of a bit of a westernizing of Islam, I think. And all of those hadiths are never going to be translated. <laughs> a million hadiths in different versions, and I don't think so. Even though translation doesn't give you access in a juridically reliable way to the original, you have to use the Arabic. So, uh, the Muatta, effectively this is his own compilation. He didn't write it, but it's uh, verdicts of his, and hadiths, and sayings, and reports of the believers, particularly the, the jurists of the city of Medina. And the word muatta <coughs> gives us a clue. Um, it means the, the approved. Watta'i always kind of to trample on. In other words, all of the animals are coming to the watering hole and levelling the ground. And this is something that everybody has been to and accept. So he says, I showed my book to 70 jurists of Medina and kulluhum wata'ani alayh. They all agreed with me on it. So I call it al-muwatta. Uh, I mentioned Ibn al-Majishun, one of his teachers, who also had al-muwatta, which was slightly earlier. Uh, Malik has a disciple, Ibn Wahab, who also has a Muatta. So he wasn't the only person to write a book called the Muatta. 
Mota is a collection of material in the category called Mosannaf, which means that it's arranged not by narrator, but by subject, which is useful. <coughs> Hadith co collections that, are, like the Musnad of Ahmad bin Hanbal, narrated just by um, the, uh, the narrator of the Hadith, um, the, the Sahabi, or the one that you get the Hadith from are rather technical and difficult to use. But this is narrated by, arranged by subject. Uh, again, those who think that you can know what Islam is just by pulling off the shelf translations or even single editions should be aware of the fact that the Muatta is not just there in a single version, but there's maybe 75 different versions of the Muatta of Malik. Again, this is our culture of ambiguity idea. And it's hard sometimes for the modern mind. I read this in the Muatta. Mm, okay. Which Muatta? Did you look at the manuscripts? Do you know there's differences even about that particular muata, etc.? Uh, we tend not to go there because we're just too lazy. And almost all of these are actually Malik's own recensions. He produces different versions of his collection, which is not kind of like a monograph nowadays. It's perfect. I'm going to send it to the university press, but rather his systematic notes, his anthology of legal and doctrinal material that uh, evolves over time. And the best known of these is the recension, the version of somebody called Yahya ben Yahya al-Laythi, who is a Spaniard, he's from Cordoba. And it's perhaps the most widely used recension, partly because he was one of the last of Malik's students. So he gets this text when it's in a very evolved uh, uh, form. And Malik really respected um, uh, Yahya ben Yahya. He called him Aqil al-Andalus, the, the intelligent man of Andalusia. Uh, so, as well as there being different muatas, um, there are lots of commentaries, a lot of commentaries on the muata. A lot of the Indian scholars have produced um, scholars on the muata for various reasons. The Indians have always loved the book. Um, perhaps the most famous commentary is that of Imam Zarqani, which is in four volumes, but there are plenty of others. And you really need to go into the commentaries in order to see the complexity of the interpreter's task. Their commentaries because the texts are complicated. Um, so what is in it? Well, it contains sound hadiths. It contains sayings of the companions, fatwas of the companions and of the tabi'in, and also Malik's own view, considered scrupulous opinion, ra'i, on certain issues. Um, this famous Isnad which we mentioned, Malik, An-Nafi' uh, and Ibn Umar, on Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is there in the Muattaq Bukhari, called it the most reliable of all of the, the chains. And there's 80 um, of these in the Muattaq. Um, and Scholars have debated and continue to debate on the degree of soundness of all of the hadiths in the Muatta. Um, so there's 222 isnads or hadiths with isnads in the uh, Yahya bin Yahya recension of the, the Muatta, uh, which don't name the companion. It's a hadith, but it kind of skips the generation. This is what's called the Mursal. There's a lot of them in the Muatta and in other early 
Maliki uh, texts and texts in general. And Dr. Omar in his book Malik and Medina explains this and explains why in some cases a mursal hadith, a hadith that omits the name of the Sahabi, is regarded as having more evidentiary weight than uh, uh, a hadith which is hadith al-ahad, sound narrators in a single line. And there's complex reasons for that. It's, it's certainly not an example of his uh, carelessness. Um, uh, Ibn Abdul Bar, perhaps the greatest mind who has applied himself to the Muatta. Ibn Abdul Bar is um, two or three centuries later, he's from Cordoba, but uh, travels extensively and becomes uh, the chief Qadi of Lisbon, al Ushbuna, which of course was a Muslim city at the time, um, and writes this amazing thing called Kitab al-Tamheed, one of the monuments of medieval scholarship. Kitab al-Tamheed, Lima fil al-Ma'ani wal-Asanid, which is a big multi-volume text, which is basically a study of the uh, Isnads, mainly of the Isnads of the Muatta and establishing them and analyzing them. Um, and his conclusion, uh, which is generally followed in the later Madhab, which is that there are only four hadiths in the Muatta which uh, can be considered to be non Sahih. Um, I've got a list of them here, but perhaps time is pressing. The other book which preserves Malik's fiqh is called Al-Mudawana, sometimes called Mudawanat Sahnun. This is not compiled by Malik himself, and it's much bigger. What it contains basically is Malik's legal views that were uh, collected during his lifetime, and also fatwas which were analogically deduced from his fatwas. So it's a text of the early Maliki madhab, really, rather than Malik's own book. Again, the problem with this is that although it contains, it's one of the most important sources we have for uh, the social and legal life of early Islam, uh, there isn't really a good edition of it. There's an old one which everybody used to use. I recall it was on sale on kind of tobacconist shops in Cairo when I lived there. Um, but it was based on a Moroccan manuscript which now nobody can find. Uh, and there's also uh, one that came out about 15 years ago in Abu Zabi, because the Emirates is still technically a Maliki country. But that is also quite problematic because it doesn't really explain which manuscripts it, it's used. So we don't have a stable text for this, unfortunately. It's been worked on by somebody called Miklos Moranyi, who is one of the great historians of early Islamic law and particularly of the Maliki Madhab, who has spent much of his life in the libraries of Qairawan, which is this great city, inland city of uh, Tunisia, which has some very, very ancient uh, Maliki texts, including versions of the Mudawana, but also other early uh, Maliki texts, the Mustakhraja, uh, the Otbiya, the Mawazia of Ibn al-Mawaz, al-Wadiha, as, as, as well as the Mudawana, these other compendia of Maliki law, and he's found some very ancient fragments of those which apparently don't exist anywhere else. So the main channel for the Mudawana uh, is somebody called Ibn al-Qasim, who was one of Malik's star pupils who spent 20 years uh, keeping his close company. Again, a very austere figure, 
of interest to some early Sufis as well. He read the entire Quran every day. Uh, and uh, another figure associated with it is somebody called Ashab, who was the chief Qadi of Egypt. And then Sahnon ibn Sa'id, who's buried in, in Qairawan. It's quite a big uh, mazar there. Who is the chief Qadi of Qairawan, um, who studied in uh, Medina under some of Malik's pupils. Yeah, another leadership example. So he's always felt that he was not competent to be a judge. This is Imam Sahnon. At the age of 74, the governor of Ifriqiya, North Africa, presses him. We really need a good judge. You're the man for the job. This is your responsibility. And so he says, I agree on condition that I have the right to prosecute members of your family if you've done anything wrong. That's the, that's the deal. It has to give him the contract. So he was always very courteous in his court, but um, he never allowed uh, official representatives any kind of concessions. So if the ruler or somebody from the government wanted to be represented in the court, they would have to come themselves. They couldn't just send a, an official or a proxy. Um, we're told that when Imam Sahnon died, the Emir's family was so cross with him that they refused to attend his janazah. Um, he always refused to accept a salary from the state. He, he was a judge, but for free. And a great dhakir, so famously he wore a big tasbih prayer, prayer beads around his neck while he was, he was judging. Uh, so he is one of the contributing the, uh, thinkers of the uh, Mudawwana. Um, works with Ibn al-Qasim, but our understanding of the text is that essentially it's there to deal with difficult technical questions which are really not covered in Malik's uh, Muwatta. And on those issues, it can be amazingly detailed. Uh, but on other issues, it seems to be quite short, so some scholars have wondered why that should be. It doesn't seem consistent. The reason why it tends to be short on some issues is generally that those issues which have been covered in some other text in the Madhab and particularly in the Muatta. So we should draw this to a close. Um, we can see that even though I've just been talking about a, a lawyer, a jurisprudent, we can see in our civilization this is really where the essence of life is. This is where the divine through morality intersects with the grittiness of people's lives and the function of the jurist is conscientiously and in an egoless way to create a path for people to engage positively with the gift of life and God's creation uh, but at the same time to see everything as sacred. So this is religious law but it's sacred law uh, but it isn't really Islamic law in the sense that a lot of modern Muslims understand it or the journalists understand it. It is a legal tradition. And the Maliki or Saul particularly, their, their respect and their veneration for the people of Medina represents a Maliki way of doing business with the revelation. But the Iraqi way is quite different and that becomes the Hanafi Madhab, which interacts with the Malikis but is different. The Shafi'i way is different, the Hanbali way tends to accept certain categories of hadiths at face value that the Malikis and the Hanafis won't accept. These are different methods. And that also reminds us of the point that I started off with, which is this very striking plurivocality of classical Islam, that they had this riayat al-khilaf, that they preserved 
differences. And even though the followers of the madhabs, human beings, nature, human nature being what it is, uh, sometimes there were acerbic relations between them, nonetheless, Sunni Islam becomes this family of opinions and methodologies, not just in the furor, the actual rulings of the law, but in the whole method, the legal philosophy, the theology of how you engage with the text, quite different as well. So that's the point that I think we have to end with, that we have in our civilization heroes and leaders like Imam Malik, who managed to combine an absolute refusal of any kind of compromise in matters related to God's religion with the equal certainty that God's religion has to be multiple and has to have respect for uh, different views, different interpretations, ikhtilaf, ijtihad, ta'arud, all of these things that become really what it is, at least until the 19th century, to be a Muslim of the Ahl al-Sunnah wal-Jamara. So I could talk about Imam Malik all day. We've just scratched the surface, and much of the greatness of his soul is to be found in the actual details of his, his rulings. But inshallah, this has at least incentivized us to learn more about him. Rahmatullahi alayhi wa arda. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Cambridge Muslim College training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.